You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. Going through an MLS academy works for many players, but a lot of the players we talk to want to be testing themselves at the highest level. They see Christian Pulisic playing in the Champions League and they want to be that guy. We're not going to be selling players directly to Barcelona. For us, it's about making incremental improvements and learning almost on the fly. And then once we scale it to a bigger level, we'll have the knowledge to say, okay, we really know what it took to move a player at a 500,000 euro transfer. Now we're going to move a guy for 5 million. This idea that a rich guy comes in like an Ellis Short at Sunderland and just cuts blank checks, that's not sustainable. One day the faucet turns off and then the club says, what do we do now? Which is exactly what happened. Hi, Richard here. On this episode of Sports Content Strategy, I'm speaking to Jordan Gardner. Got a very interesting tale. He's worked in football for a number of years, or soccer because he's American, worked with clubs in the US, but also got stakes in Dundalk, in Swansea, and he's looking to acquire a club in Europe with a view to hothousing young talent, bringing over 16 to 19-year-old players and coaches and backroom staff and things like that to develop these players and grow a club by making profits, selling them on to European clubs. Interesting model. It's been done before, but not with US players and taking them abroad with this deliberate plan. And of course, there's tremendous amount of talent in the US, a tremendous amount of people playing soccer in the US. And and that's one of the reasons why people feel it's a real area of growth and a real area of development of course there's many things at play here you've got to choose the right league choose the right club get your business model right get the right conditions in order to grow the talent and then there's the story you've got to tell the content side how do you communicate what you're doing it's a different business model you've got existing fans what are they going to think so we're talking about all those issues and U.S. soccer in general and U.S. development of players in general. Remember, I'm on all social media. Mr. Richard Clark is my handle and that's the name of my website as well, mrrichardclark.com. And if you need a consultant, I'm a solo consultant who fits between the content team and the business team to make sure they both work together in lovely harmony. That's the plan anyway. So let's talk U.S. soccer, developing players in Europe with this man. My name is Jordan Gardner. I'm a football or soccer, as we call it here in the U.S., uh, investor. I have several investments across the landscape of global soccer. So that includes a very small minority stake in Swansea City in the U.K., uh, also a minority stake in Dundalk, which is a club in, in the Republic of Ireland. And more recently, we are on the verge of acquiring a majority stake of a uh, professional club in Denmark where we can bring in some foreign players, most likely Americans, to develop from that 16 to 19-year-old age point. So um, definitely looking at the football world in an entrepreneurial way, in a different way, in a more strategic way, and trying to find inefficiencies in the space that um, can be interesting to certainly exploit from a business perspective. So thanks for speaking to me, Jordan. How did you start out in this route? Because you're ploughing a very particular furrow, it seems. Yeah, um, I had a prior business that I sold that was in secondary ticketing here in the U.S., um, kind of a very similar company to StubHub. And so it had a sports component to it, but I'd always wanted to go back into soccer. Um, I played growing up up to a semi-professional level and I knew enough people around the game here in the U.S. who had invested in clubs or worked for clubs and really just start to see the landscape. And mainly I saw it was just a very inefficient space. Things were not done in a way that made any financial sense to me whatsoever. Um, you know, I certainly came to the conclusion that you can't run a sports club 
just like a business, but you also can't and shouldn't run it just like a passion project where it has no sound business um, acumen to it. So I, you know, I felt there was this kind of space or a niche, if you want to call it, for to come in and and do things a little bit differently. And that started here in the U.S. and had a one or two contacts that were looking at some clubs in Europe. And one thing led to another, and I found the models in Europe very interesting. You know, you you could buy a club and get it up to a higher level with promotion that we obviously don't have here in the states. Um, there's interesting things going on with European competition and prize money. And then obviously everything knows, you know, everyone knows about player development and bringing players over to move on to bigger clubs and finding really interesting commercial opportunities there. So it's kind of everything I've done has been organic, strategic. One thing's led to another. It's gone from small minority investments to larger investments to now a majority investment. So everything I do is about proving the model at a smaller scale and then jumping up to the higher levels rather than kind of going in eyes closed and jumping in and let's say buying a big club and not really having a full grasp on what we're trying to do. But you were running a club as president of San Francisco City when you were in high school, was it, or in college? Uh, no, that was after after college. We had a couple clubs. San, Fran- San Francisco City was one of them. Uh, then we went down to the Burlingame Dragons, which is was an under-23 developmental team for the San Jose Earthquakes, which is a major league soccer club here. So both clubs are at a very, very slow level, but it it kind of helped get me some experience in terms of what it takes to run run a club, whether it's ticketing and sponsorship or player recruitment. And certainly with Burlingame in particular, being tied in with an MLS club was very interesting, was able to you know, learn a lot of the, the back end when it comes to what it looks like to run a, a major league soccer franchise. And obviously MLS is growing quite a bit. And um, you know, so whether it's from player recruitment or on their end commercialization, both were really, really interesting learning experiences for me going back several years. And as you say, you've been involved in Dundalk, you've been involved in Swansea. What have you learned there? Yeah, I mean, I think each project I'm involved with, I take something new. Um, You know, Swansea, I think, has done a lot of things really well. I think that the club obviously, unfortunately, got relegated last year, but the club has um, invested really well in the youth academy. So, um, you know, we're playing a lot of young players right now. Players that are coming through the system are doing a great job. Um, Certainly, there are challenges with the organization, with with things that have happened with the relegation, just being a part of a relegation has been really interesting because again, that's not something we typically or do experience at all here in the U S so seeing how the landscape changes on the commercial side or the recruitment side, you know, a good example is the club I believe was public in that they were looking to expand the stadium to expand seating at the Liberty stadium. But obviously that those plans get put on hold when you get relegated. So little, not little things, big infrastructure projects totally change the scale of what you're trying to do when you get relegated. So that that's been a very interesting project, you know, process to be a part of. And specifically what you're doing with the, is it fair to say soon to be takeover of a, of a Danish club, is to bring over these US players at a young age that would be youth academy players in, in England, the 16 to 19 year olds, bring them over and educate them. Why is that necessary? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is there's not a huge gap in terms of the talent development in the young players between Europe and the US up until maybe 14, 15, 16. That gap is not wide, but... but once the players get to that that you know sixteen year old point, the gap starts to widen. It certainly gets very wide once you hit the college years here in the states. So, we felt there was a unique opportunity to get young Americans, and it doesn't exclusively have to be Americans. It can be other pipelines, Australia, New Zealand, South America. But we we know the market here in the states, and you know there are lots of young Americans that are going to Europe, but it's not really being done in a strategic or cohesive way. It's an Asian knows a club in Germany. A lot of them are going to Germany, and you know that that's working out for some of them. You see the success of Weston McKinney and Christian Pulisic, but many of these players get lost in the shuffle. 
Um, you know, culturally going to a place like Germany or Holland can be very difficult. Um, the language barrier, the cultural barriers, the, the just extremely high level of football culture in that country. So we felt it would be more interesting to buy a club in maybe, I don't want to say off the beaten track, but you know, Scandinavia, it's a different culture where we can bring the infrastructure to help those foreign players, in this case, Americans, really succeed from that young age point from 16, 17, 18 and then develop and then move on to the bigger clubs in Europe and, and really give them a bet, you know, the tools to succeed in Europe rather than kind of just throwing them in the deep end. So that's the thought process. The, the model's still evolving, but we really like the climate in Denmark. You know, there's obviously no foreign player restrictions. There's a culture of playing young players. Um, everyone speaks English. It's a very, very easy cultural integration. And most importantly, there's several Americans that are already proving the model. There's Jonathan Amon at FC Norseland, Emmanuel Sabi at Hobro. Um, there's Roman Gall, who's at Malmo over in Sweden. Two out of those three guys have just got called up to the U.S. national team. So Americans are succeeding in Scandinavia. We just want to kind of ramp that up and do it a little bit more strategically. So you outlined why you would go for that particular league, but what factors come into play to determine the particular club? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the two... The most important pieces of the puzzle for us are inf clearly infrastructure. I mean, that's probably the most important piece. So the club we're looking at has a new stadium opening over the summer. And the second most important thing, and it's tied into infrastructure, is you know basically the academy setup. Because many clubs we looked at in Scandinavia had either no full-time employees or no academy infrastructure. We want to be able to come in and not just slot our players into the first team, which can be difficult for players to adjust and come right in and, and the pressure to produce in you know a month, two months, three months. We want to bring these kids in, develop them, bring them into our U-17s, U-19s, reserve teams, and the first team, and give them the right opportunity to um, develop in that culture, feel comfortable, obviously address the psychological component to it, which in many cases is just important, just as important as the on-field performance to make sure they're comfortable so they can succeed. So, you know, infrastructure was really important. The club is in the first division, which is the second tier in Denmark, but it was in the Superliga last year. It's kind of a yo-yo club. So the good news is they have excellent infrastructure from the commercial side and from the footballing side. So rather than picking a club that's in the Superliga, first, second, third division, we wanted to make sure it was the right club in the right geographic location with proximity to Copenhagen, with the right infrastructure, with the right set of tools that we could be successful right off the bat with our project. Yeah, and there's many challenges there, I'm sure, getting the right staff in. And you've talked about it being a hothouse, a greenhouse for American coaches. You've also got to sell it to the fans of that particular club as well because they don't want to be seen as an experiment. Yeah, I mean, I get asked that a lot. Um, how, how does the local community view what we're trying to do? How will they react? And I think it's important that you know, obviously our messaging is that the Danish players are still important to what we're doing. It's This is not going to be Team America. This is not going to be 11 guys from America You know, on the first team, certainly right off the bat. We're going to slowly, culturally integrate the players into the club and into the community and always have an eye that the Danish player is still very important. Denmark produces very, very good players. So I think it's about merging the cultures together between the foreign players and the local players and finding that right mix. And, you know, fortunately, the club we're looking at, it's a relatively small club. It doesn't have a lot of eyeballs on it. You know, certainly down the road, if and when we scale to bigger clubs or we look at something in the UK, I think we'll have a lot more challenges when it comes to convincing the local market that this is the right model. But for what we're doing right now, there's been a lot of positive responses. And I think as long as we continue to do things the right way, we won't run into too many issues. Is there a, a sell you've got to do to get players over there as well? Just because if you look at, 
I've worked in the in US soccer and it's as as much as it is growing and the potential is huge, it's still the number five sport in my opinion. And, and the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and Major League Baseball are the number one leagues in their particular sport. Soccer's different in that people look outside the US for improvement. Is there is there a reticence to to travel and go uh, go somewhere else at the age of 16 to improve their sport? No, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I, I do agree that certainly soccer is still a growing sport in this country. It's nowhere near the most popular sport. Um, I do think the players at that age that do commit to the sport do want to be playing at the highest level. You know, certainly playing, you know, going through an MLS academy is an option and, and works for many players. But the, a lot of the players we talk to want to be testing themselves at the highest level. They see Christian Pulisic playing in the Champions League and they want to be that guy. So I think for us, what's more important than anything is making sure that we can harness the interest that's already there with the right system to make sure that the, when they go over, they have education and the infrastructure is right. And they're not kind of just thrown in into the deep end in Europe, which we see a lot, but in general, I don't see too much reticence for the kids to go over. In fact, I think as more Americans succeed like Christian Pulisic, it's giving more kids the interest in doing that themselves as well. Yeah, certainly he's a, uh... He's a shining star. He's made it out, gone from Bundesliga into into the Premier League, and that's and that's quite interesting because in England in the last couple of years you've seen Jordan Sancho go to Dortmund, you see Panzo go to Monaco, Madoiki's gone from Spurs to PSV. So for the first time, we've actually been losing some of our great youth players, and we've got a very good youth set up at the moment with England doing well in World Cups and Euros at youth level to Europe so it's it's quite interesting that we as a if not the the best league in the world certainly the most moneyed and most significant league in the world is also losing players to Europe yeah I mean you see that every league in the world to them for the most part has the same problem with some of their best players leaving or foreign players coming in it's it's a very similar challenge that it has you know certainly with the U.S. it's you know MLS is bringing in a lot of foreign players from South America and that's making things more difficult for young Americans to get playing time. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic you see, but certainly not unique. I mean, Denmark, for instance, a lot of the young players are moving on to Ajax and Italy at young ages as well. So I think that's just a characteristic of global football right now. There must be a massive emphasis on getting that coaching environment right, that player care right, that every aspect has got to be right because your business model is going to be based on improving those players and selling them on. And of course, there's many clubs in in Europe trying to do that and sell to the Barcelonas and the Manchester Uniteds and the Liverpools. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't think enough clubs, and certainly some do a good job of it, but enough clubs really take every piece of the development uh, seriously, whether it's nutrition, whether it's psychological makeup, whether it's you know making sure the players are comfortable in their country. I think that's something we're very cognizant of and making sure that when we bring a player over, we know what it's going to take for them to succeed from every piece from on the field and off the field and make sure we execute that. Cause yes, you're right. Everyone wants to do player development. Everyone thinks it's a great idea in theory, but how do you actually execute that? I think the nice thing with us is we're at a low enough level now where we can try things. We can do things differently. We're not going to be selling players directly to Barcelona where you know, for us, it's about making incremental improvements and learning almost on the fly. And then once we scale it to a bigger level, we'll have the knowledge to say, OK, you know, we really know what it took to move a player at a 500,000 euro transfer. Now we're going to move a guy for five million. What's that look like? So do we have that experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, you spoke about someone there, but what are the moving parts of, 
of making that environment correct because everyone's talked about Moneyball and Sabermetrics coming out of baseball and the Oakland A's and Billy Beans. Well, so many clubs have tried to do that. I would I would argue that, that anyone coming into it now needs a point of difference because either you're going to have to be cleverer than them and there's lots of people trying to be clever at it or you're going to have to find something that makes you stand out and, and improve your players in a different way. Is that fair? Yeah, I think yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think what we're trying to do, at least for now, is it's just a different scale than everyone's doing. We're we're looking at players that are young, very young, coming in on mostly free transfers, coming in at that young enough age group and the in a small enough scale where we can kind of get players, I don't want to say that are under the radar, but a different profile of player than let's say a, a large European club is looking at. So we can take a risk on a kid that maybe at 16 is not, let's say a youth national team player, but by 19 has developed into a world-class player where maybe Barcelona is looking at that kid and he's not good enough at 16. So they don't bring him in. So it's a, just a different type of player. Um, so it's just, a, I, I think what separates us for now is it's a different model. We're certainly going after hard, the American player, which not a lot of clubs look at really seriously in many ways, frankly, I think that's a point of differentiation in general is some markets are completely untapped. I think there's opportunities in places like Australia and obviously the U.S. Um, obviously, Africa is being tapped by certain clubs, but there's so much potential there. So, you know, at our level, we're not looking at a sophisticated algorithm in terms of identifying players because the players are so young and there's not a lot of data out there. But, you know, down the road for us, I think it's going to be important where less so about the, you know, we're doing things in, in a different, more sophisticated way. It's just a little bit of a different way, maybe in a geographical sense or what kind of player we're looking at. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I was over in the US when, uh, no, I wasn't. I was back in England, I tell a lie, but, but the failure to make the World Cup, there was a, a gnashing of teeth, a huge wailing. There were f- critici- criticism thrown all over the place, and it, it was an, an indication of the expectation now on the shoulder of the U.S. men's national team. Pundits came out and called them soft, and you know weren't willing to put the effort in. And of course, Klinsman had been saying as a national coach that they needed to go to Europe to excel. And so, your process there, I would argue, is making them harder, open up, open up to new environments, getting a European environment. But MLS is going to work against the interests of MLS. So there's a few issues at play here, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the road, MLS is spending a lot of money on developing players into their academies. And frankly, a lot of the clubs right now are not seeing a lot come out of that. And, you know, the MLS needs to do a better job of developing players and giving a pathway to first team mets to these young Americans. But even if you compare the professional environment of an MLS club versus a European club or let's say a Mexican club, it's just night and day that that the environment at these clubs. And I think MLS has improved in many ways, but having a player in a European environment versus an MLS environment, it's just, there's no comparison. So look at the end of the day, it's a numbers game in the U S there's so many good players. I'm sure there are players that are in MLS academies that will come to us and, and want to move to Europe, but there are plenty of other relationships with academies that are not affiliated with MLS, other pipelines of players that we feel are just as strong, if not stronger than the pipelines coming through MLS now. And look at the end of the day, MLS has to decide who and what they are. And right now what they are is a league that brings in a lot of foreign players and, and that's great. That's great for the league. But obviously, that's not necessarily in line with the Federation and that the Federation wants to develop young players for our national team. So, again, this is not a unique situation for the U.S., but um, we're, we, you know, we feel I would love it 
if we have players come through our system in Denmark and, you know, down the road, they're playing for the national team. Certainly that's not going to happen right off the bat, but we would love to help facilitate more and more Americans playing at higher levels in Europe. Certainly that, that is the end goal. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, having been sort of schooled in um, English football and worked in English football by life, going over to America, and we and I went to the draft when Colorado were, of course, part of the draft. And our first home game, we've got a, a new draftee player lining up against David Villa. But of course, the, so the, but the drafted player is like twenty two, so he's making his MLS debut at twenty two, and he's marking David Villa in his second game, and fu- and funnily enough, that guy's guy called Axel Schuberg, and he'd he adapted much quicker to MLS because he'd been in the Djurgården Academy in Sweden, playing in the reserve team at the age of sixteen, seventeen, or whatever it is, and. He'd been kicked about a bit and he, he could certainly handle himself. So I thought that was an indicative story of the the deficiencies of what the college system does, I suppose, in terms of soccer. You know, because in the English Premier League, if you're making your debut at 22, well... Yeah, you won't be. You'd have if if you're playing for a top line Premier League club, you'd have been on loan to various clubs, and they'd have made a decision on you. And either you were knocking hard on the on the first team door at the age of 22, or you'd been sold. So it's, it's such a different dynamic. Yeah, I mean, college soccer um, is really um, you know made things difficult for players to develop from that 18 to 22 age group here in the states. I think. The MLS draft, as you referenced, is becoming less relevant as those players come through. You know, they're only playing two months a year. They're playing a little bit in the spring. I mean, it's a, it's just not an environment where a professional athlete can develop. So, you know, I think more and more people in and around MLS and U.S. soccer have realized that. You see more players signing homegrown contracts in MLS at 17 and 18 and foregoing the college system. Um, so I think I think most people in the U.S. have realized that by 22, it's too late in terms of development for the most part. Now, you see exceptions, um, players that come through this college system and still can succeed. But I give a good example of a player locally here in the Bay Area, a guy named Nick Lima, who came through the San Jose Earthquakes Academy, went to college for four years, just got called up to the national team and, and did really well. He's a fantastic player. But you just step back and think, if that player had been in a European environment at 16, 17, you could extrapolate and say, wow, he could potentially be a world-class player. Now, he's a great player now, but he could be even better than he is. Now, not every player at 16, 17 is mature enough to go into that European environment. So I think sometimes we have to take I have to take a step back and say, you know what, just because you extrapolated out doesn't mean uh, a player like Nick Lima will be a world-class player. But I think chances are much higher if they're in that environment versus going through the traditional system that we have here in the US. Obviously, Man City have done something like this where they've, they've, they've well, something like you're envisioning, I should say, where they will have a, uh, a number of teams and there's cross-pollination almost between the teams. Are you trying to do that at a, at a lower level? And, and, and is it comparable just because Man City are... A, Operate, you know, they're Melbourne and New York City and a Japanese club, a Uruguayan club, I think. Is it is it a comparable thing? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some characteristics of what we want to do, let's say, in the next five to ten years that do follow the city model. There are definitely some strong differences. I think, in general, 
you can do a lot of what City Football Group does, I think, at a much smaller scale. I don't think you need clubs in the Premier League, MLS, Australia. I think you can do things similar with a team in Switzerland or a second division team in France or you know, more clubs in developing countries. I also think you don't necessarily just have to have first teams where you can go into, let's say, an emerging market and have an academy so you have a pipeline of talent. I also think the model needs to be a little bit more diversified where it's not just clubs and first teams but it's more ancillary businesses around the sport that maybe have a little bit more financial upside. So maybe it's a media business in the football space. Maybe it's real estate. I'm very much of the model of diversification where uh, if you're just looking at first team clubs, that can be very limiting, right? I mean, city football group does what they do for a lot of reasons, but a lot of them are geopolitical. Uh, A lot of them aren't necessarily just financially driven. So I do think you can also diversify the business models within the clubs where, yes, player development is a big piece of it, but maybe you find clubs that are distressed assets. Maybe you find a third division team in Spain that you can get back up to La Liga. There's a lot of interesting models you can take, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just one straight line necessarily like a city football group model. And I also don't see the city football group and even the Red Bulls of the world really using economies of scale most efficiently. You don't see the players moving very often, if, if at all, between the clubs. You know, sometimes they even try to keep that player movement off the record because they have conflicts of interest. The nice thing at lower clubs is you don't necessarily have to worry about both of your teams playing each other in the Champions League. You can move the players seamlessly from one club to another, from one academy to another in a really efficient way. And I think now as you see FIFA potentially eliminating the massive amounts of loan players out there that the Chelsea's of the world have, I think a model like this makes more sense where you can start to stockpile some of your developmental players in clubs you own and then move them around where you know in the past it might not be possible now to just loan those players out and have them under contract. So I think down the road, this is not imminent for us. It's just a more global, more interesting model than I think some other people are looking at. And you've mentioned specific problems with the UK market. Is that is that just the labour laws or is there anything more specific than that? Yeah, I mean, uh, my issue with the UK is, and maybe it's coming from the American perspective, knowing a lot of American investors come in and try to do things in the UK and end up losing quite a bit of money. Um, I think the work permit requirements, on one hand, make things very difficult to, to be disruptive and try to do things differently. I think uh, from a competition standpoint, um, it can be very challenging to, let's say, come into the championship or League One or even League Two, and you're competing competing with, let's say, a Saudi billionaire who owns a team in the third division. So I just think it's a very oversaturated, very crowded market when it comes to football investment. And it can be very challenging for me, at least, to come up with a model that makes any financial sense whatsoever. You know, you see some clubs, a Bournemouth of the world. Um, there's an American group that owns Portsmouth that I think is doing a really nice job. But there are many, many more instances of of models that just don't make any sense. I'm just I'm of the mindset to go into a place that other people aren't looking. And from an American perspective, everyone is looking at the UK when it comes to football investment. Yeah, and I also think there's a, a resistance to the diversification that you've spoken about as well. You know, opening up a hotel, a, a lifestyle brand alongside, alongside it. There's, there's cynicism and resistance to, to that outside of the top half dozen clubs, I would think. So that, that hems you in as well, I, w- I would have thought too. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting being a part of the Swansea experience where, I mean, even just being a part of a club like that, there's so much passion and excitement about the club. 
you know, it's almost at times can be too far. It can be difficult to run a business, for instance, when there's so many eyeballs on what you're doing. If we were trying to do a player's development model like we had in Denmark and we're trying to do it in the UK, it would be much more challenging. We would potentially face boycotts from the fans and massive pushback because we're trying to sell our best players. So it can be limiting in terms of what we can do from a business perspective because there is this very much this you know, this is not a business, this is a culture, um, you should commercialize our club, which I completely and totally agree with. But at the end of the day, if the fans want this club to be here in 100 years, it has to be a business. This idea that a rich guy comes in like an Ellis Short at Sunderland and just cuts, cuts blank checks, that's not sustainable. One day the faucet turns off and then the club says, what do we do now? Which is exactly what happened. So there has to be this happy medium between the business and the passion side of it. And I'm not sure it's easy to find that balance in the UK. Yeah, I mean, that that benefactor model goes back to clubs' nicknames. You know, West Ham are called the Irons because they're based out of, out of a factory because it was a works team, and that was effectively a benefactor model. So it, you are fighting against 130-odd years of of tradition, albeit it's, it's not... Um, it's it's not sustainable, and that and that is the watchword at the moment, isn't it? Sustainability, because you've got uh, all but the top end. You have everyone trying to be sustainable. Is it? What are clubs doing wrong in in terms of trying to be sustainable? Obviously, you've got the Man Cities and the Man Us, etc. They're in a different world, but for everybody else below that sort of top five percent. What are they doing wrong in, in, in having a sustainable model, in, in making a sustainable model work? I think most clubs don't even try to have a sustainable model, to be honest with you. I think maybe they say it, but they don't actually practice it. Um, I mean, if you just look in the UK, for instance, in the championship with the amount of teams losing, the amount of money they're losing, I don't think there's a serious attempt to say, you know what, we're only getting £10 million in television revenue. We really can't spend X on player wages, right? There's the... the, the the lack of financial discipline, I think, is what it comes down to. And certainly that starts with ownership, um, the pressures that come with spending money on players in a place like the UK. So, I, you know, there's there's a hundred different reasons why some clubs fail and they lose a lot, a lot of money. But a lot of it comes down to just ownership that does not come into place and set a budget and stick to that budget. I think there's because this is not a traditional business. You know, you might say, you know what, we're in eighth place. We want to go after a promotion, so we'll buy X player. And when you don't get that promotion and you bought that X player, now you're in the hole for a significant amount of money. So I think it's just difficult for clubs to have an identity and understand who they are and what they are and stick to a plan. There's just too much um, kind of scatterbrained thinking and passionate play and people who are really savvy business people come into football. And, you know, people have used this quote before. They're like, you know, a smart businessman will come into football and he'll leave his brain at the door before he goes into football. So there's just there's just too there's just too much of that. It happens absolutely all the time. And is another factor the disruption within the media market where you've got well, people have been talking about a TV rights bubble for any number of years, but certainly the TV rights model is going to suffer disruption in the next decade or so. It's clear. That just makes sustainability that bit more important because TV ratings, it used to be a third, a third, a third commercial uh, ticket revenue and, t and TV for the big clubs. But now, isn't it, TV is more important. So if that changes, there's, pr there's problems ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with the way so much of the revenue is skewed towards television, it does not incentivize the clubs to innovate when it comes to other revenue streams. So whether it's international commercial growth or sponsorship or tickets or other commercial areas, if I'm getting 95% of my uh, you know, my income, or you know, maybe not that high, but let's say 75% of my income from television, I'm not going to go that extra mile to hire that extra employee to really grow my commercial because it's not significant on my line item on my budget. So that's one hand of, one piece of it. The other piece I see is, as at each step as television revenue has grown, a very large chunk of that just goes back into player wages. So, um, you know, TV money, I think everyone looks at the Premier League and says, wow, you know, teams are getting 100, 125 million pounds on television. But what percentage of that just goes right back into the players? And so, yes, to your point, once the TV uh, payments go down at some point, which I think most people agree will happen, are the player wages going to go down or is that going to create a bubble when it comes to player wages and things are going to get even worse? So I think that's, again, it's this challenging fact where these the ownership groups and these clubs can't help themselves. They all want to trip over themselves to spend more money on more players. But, you know, certainly if the media money goes down, it's going to make things even worse. It just makes that communication issue even more important because if you go in and buy a club and you're growing players in order to sell them on well that's got to work if it doesn't work you're going to ask the fans to be patient and then you're not going to spend because you know it'll bankrupt the business but if you're on the cusp of going for promotion that is what causes these championship clubs so much trouble because if they do get into the premier league they've got not only that money for one year they've got parachute payments i mean aston villa last year when they didn't get up it it scuppered them i can understand it but you're right. People leave their brains at the door when they go into the club, and it's 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 ridiculous in a way. But it just makes that communication part that you're talking about even more important. Yeah, no, I mean, I think something I see too to, uh, along those lines is a lot of clubs and owners don't they aren't out there in terms of communicating exactly what the philosophy is in terms of are we spending money? What are we spending money on? What are we doing? I'm very much of the opinion where if I own a club in Europe. The fans certainly will not agree with every decision I make, but at least I'm going to be transparent and come out there and say, this is what I'm doing. You know, this is what I'm spending the parachute payments on. This is what we're spending players on. This is why we're not spending money because we want to make sure that this club is going to be here in 75 years. And you might not like it, but I think a lot of groups kind of hide behind the facade, uh, whatever you want to call it. You know, maybe it's a personality conflict or whatever. They don't like to be out there or don't like to hire people that are out there. And then the, the fans jump to their own conclusions and assume uh, owners are putting money in their pockets. And that's where you see a lot of problems happen. So look, at the end of the day, it's, you know, do you have a good PR strategy? Do you have, you know, are you genuine in the community? This is a relationship driven business. I don't think a lot of the, certainly in my experience, foreign investment groups do the hard work when it comes to building what you need to be a, you know, to have a successful football club. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of boxes being checked. And I think a lot of people are in it for kind of short-term success and they don't check those boxes. I think you're right. I think it's not enough clubs actually communicate what they stand for and then practice what they preach. Look, I mean, the clubs the clubs that are good do that. I mean, Swansea from, let's say, 2010 to 15 had that. They had a club culture. Everyone knew who they were. They were producing good managers. Um, you know, you look at a Bournemouth, Bournemouth knows exactly who they are. They're excellent at what they do. I mean, there's a hundred different examples of clubs that have an identity and do an excellent job at that, but there's five times as many clubs that don't have that identity. And then it's very difficult for that club to be successful. So when are you likely to have secured this, this Danish club? We're looking in the next six to eight weeks and obviously the transfer windows closed. Um, we'll really be ramping up towards the summer. 
um, and building out the academy, focusing on the stadium, new stadium opening, and then really for a fall, really a hard push for the fall in terms of implementing our vision. And, you know, hopefully by this time next year, we'll be feeling really good and looking for that next club at the next level to really scale what we're doing. So it's, it's exciting. Oh, so it'll be one this summer and then you'll be looking hard straight away. I mean, we're always looking. Um, I'm always looking. I was in the Middle East. I was in South America recently. Always looking. I don't think there's enough due diligence that you can do. I mean, this club we're about to purchase is the fourth club I looked at in Denmark. I went down the road with three other clubs, and each one, while it someone might look at that as a waste of time or energy or money, they were each a learning experience to understand what exactly do we want, what is the culture of this country, what is it like doing business in this country, as similar as, let's say, Denmark is to the U.S. or the U.K., there are cultural differences. And so I think the amount of due diligence, there's just not enough you can do. So if we're looking at a new country, we might not buy a club there for five years, but if we're looking and starting to go down the road and analyzing P&Ls and really being strategic about it, those are all data points that can help us down the road. Have you identified your next country? I have not. That's a good question. I have not. I, I, I think it's probable we might do something again in Scandinavia at a slightly higher level. Um, I think the first division in Norway is interesting. Um, but I, you know, that's certainly something I've just kind of casually looked at. Um, Switzerland, I think it has some interesting characteristics as, as well. Um, the second division in Spain. I mean, there's just a lot of different places I've looked, but I haven't dug into any of them deep enough to say, yep, that's where we'll go next. It just depends. And, and how do you get your funding, by the way? Is it a group of you or are you, are you, are you putting together a, a package for an individual club or are you, he- are you heading up a group? Yeah, so I'm heading up a group. There's a consortium consortium of investors that have investments in other stakes and other sports franchises here in the U.S. Obviously, I have my own stakes in football, but these are investors that are sophisticated and you know want to look at things differently and understand what it's like to be successful in sports investment. So, um, yeah, it's a good group. I'm really happy. You know, the first step with this group is Denmark, but I think everyone's excited to do bigger and better things. Well, Jordan McCardner, thank you very much. Uh, I wish you all the best for the future. Oh, where can we find you, by the way, on Twitter, just just so we know? Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Jordan Gardner, Mr. Jordan Gardner. And uh, Richard, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Please follow at Sports Content Strategy on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, it's Sports Content SP. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog and sign up for his newsletter at mrrichardclark.com. Sports Content SP.